Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to uh, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to start in chapter 2, and then we'll uh, quickly get to uh, chapter 4. Uh, it is good to be alongside you today. Uh, my Saturday was less than ideal, so it is uh, good to be alongside you and to sing and fellowship, open up our Bibles to be encouraged by the uh, living and active Word today. If you're a guest with us, we love that you're here, but don't believe you're here by accident, so thank you for joining us today. This month, we've been looking at various titles of who Jesus is, and today we are looking at, looking at the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek translation of the same word. Both words mean that Jesus is the anointed one, the chosen one, that when he came in the flesh as a baby born to the Virgin Mary, he was fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises that our God is faithful forever. And in the sending of the Son as the Christ, he demonstrated yet again that he is faithful. The title of Christ appears over 500 times in the New Testament. It shows up in every New Testament book except one. So this title is central to who Jesus is. It shows up early in the New Testament. Matthew 1.18, it begins with, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. And then Luke 2, starting in verse 8, we read, In the same region, Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus the Messiah is born. Jesus Christ is born. This announcement is still good news to this day. And Luke 4 will lead us well there. So if you turn in your Bible to Luke 4, a couple pages over, you're going to flip through by just turning a few pages. You're, you're flipping through 30 years of approximately of Jesus' life. And here in Luke 4, in, Matthew, or in verses 16 through 30, we're going to read some of of Jesus announcing to the people that I am here. I, the promised Messiah, the one who is prophesied of and spoken of in the Old Testament, that, that He has come, and Jesus saying, and I am He. And in this passage, we also get a, a sense of the microcosm of the ministry of Jesus. We get the announcement of good news, that here's who Jesus is. And yet at the same time, in response to that announcement, some are going to reject him and his message. Not all will welcome him as the Messiah. Not all will follow and trust in him as the Christ. Throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get this foreshadowing as the story moves along, this foreshadowing of conflict and rejection. And that rejection ultimately culminates at the cross, but we'll see it beginning here, even in Jesus' first recorded message. My hope for us is that we'd be a people who would collectively welcome and receive the announcement of good news and not turn away from or reject Jesus, but we would welcome Him for, for the anointed one, the chosen one, the one sent in order to save is too good for you and I to turn away from, too good for us not to fall at His feet and worship, too good for us not to, to trust in Him in all ways, for He is the Messiah the Christ, and we most certainly are not our own Messiahs or Christ. Verse 16 in the CSB translation, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. 
Nazareth. This is the hometown of Jesus where he had done work as a carpenter during his upbringing. The people there are familiar with Jesus the carpenter, Joseph's son. And yet we'll see that their familiarity with Jesus will hinder their ability to know Jesus as as their Messiah, as their Christ, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the typical elements of a service in the synagogue would include things like a prayer, and then reciting the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, and then reading a passage from the law, and then reading a passage from the prophets. And after the reading, an invitation is given to someone to instruct the audience to help explain the passage that was read. Not just anyone, you had to meet the qualifications in order to teach or explain, and Jesus meets those qualifications here. So verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, so they're, they're, they've read from the law, they're going to read from the prophets now. The prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. Now what is interesting, this detail of Jesus unrolling the scroll implies that Jesus specifically chose this text to read at this time, at this moment. Because typically what would have happened is scroll is, is opened up, you're going to read from here, go ahead and read. It's given to the reader predetermined on what they're going to read. But in this situation, it's Jesus choosing this. So this is not coincidence. This is Jesus opening to read from the Isaiah Read from Isaiah in this specific passage. This is divine designed for him to read from a prophet who wrote these words, spirit-enabled, 700 years before this moment in the synagogue. There is drama here unfolding in the synagogue, and this is going to be the first recorded public message of Jesus. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, as we read that passage, there are two mistakes that we can make in interpreting it. One is to interpret that Jesus is only speaking of physical realities, that he, the anointed one, has been sent for. So only the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, and then to think that he's also not thinking or speaking of spiritual realities. So we, we only assume, or we assume that he's not dealing with physical realities. The other mistake we can make is that, assume that he's only speaking of spiritual conditions, of poverty, imprisonment, blindness, oppression, and not also physical realities as well. So this is not either or, but this is both and. This is yes to both. As one author said, the poor and the blind in these texts do not exclude the poor and the blind. The good news of Jesus comes to the whole of a person, physical realities and spiritual realities. The spiritual conditions of blindness, captivity, and poor in spirit, they're the predominant focus here, but we can't read this and think that the Lord does not care for the poor or those unjustly in prison or those afflicted with blindness or those enslaved by evil people or evil systems. In the context of this moment in Luke 4, Israel was under Roman oppression. They were occupied by by Rome and oppressed by Rome. These physical conditions existed in the world as they do to this day. And so while Jesus has, has been sent to bring freedom to those captive in sin, for instance, 
He has also been sent to display compassion, love, and mercy to all. The good news of Jesus brings hope to the whole of a person. So to the poor, there's hope. For we don't put our trust in riches or think that somehow our money can save us or bring about peace. To the captive, there is hope, even in injustice. To the blind and those with life-altering disease or affliction, there is hope. For we know this body is temporary, and all things new is going to come to pass. A bodily resurrection is promised to all those whose faith is in Christ. To the oppressed, there is hope that even in the midst of evil, because we know that evil does not win in the end. Evil's days are numbered. Praise God. Our God is a God of justice. And we as the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, with Him as our head, we are called to display His compassion, mercy, and love to those around us, to our neighbor. James 2 tells us that we are fooling ourselves if we think that our faith in Christ doesn't also work itself out through good works. 1 John 4 tells us that If we see a need and do nothing about it, how can we say that the love of God resides in us? For if He first loved us, how can we not turn to our neighbor or turn to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God and demonstrate love? Our outward, other-oriented, toward-neighbor good works of love should be revealing our inward love and devotion to Jesus Christ. I pray the Lord might continue to move His church And that we would welcome that spirit movement to be his hands and feet. To display that love. To show that love. To demonstrate that compassion. The church, since the days of the New Testament, has been designed to be a vehicle of compassion in this world. And we don't need to wait on a program to do that. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. The Father's given you good gifts both spiritually and physically, in order to demonstrate love and show love to the family of God as well as to your neighbor. Even more so, compassion toward the spiritual realities that we are born into, Jesus is speaking of here. So he's speaking of physical realities. He's also speaking of spiritual realities even more so that we are born spiritually poor. We are born in need of grace from our Creator. We are born into captivity, if you will, enslaved to sin, captive to our own flesh and wanting to do life our way, thinking that by rebelling against our Creator, we will find freedom when we actually find more more chains and more enslavement when we choose to do life our way. We are born spiritually blind. Our eyes don't naturally see the things of God. We, We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate our eyes and open up the eyes of our hearts. I was spiritually blind up until... Junior year in high school when the Spirit opened my eyes and moved me from darkness to light, moved me from unbelief to belief, moved me from trusting in myself to trusting in the light of the world, Jesus, the Savior, the Lord of my life. We are born oppressed by our spiritual enemy, the devil. 2 Timothy 2.26 gives us this picture that apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we are oppressed or captive to our spiritual enemy. We were born into that. And Jesus, the sent one, has been sent to preach and proclaim good news and release and recovery and freedom to those who recognize they are born poor and captive and blind and oppressed 
people who know they are in need of rescue and deliverance, who know they've been born infected with the disease of sin, and they are unable to bring about healing or remedy to that disease apart from the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus restores a person and who they were created to be. And we were created to be worshipers, worshipers of the Lord, to enjoy Him in this life for all of eternity, people who would bring Him glory, enjoy Him, reflect and mirror His goodness and His grace and His truth to those around us. Jesus is sent to preach good news, but for news to be good, we must understand the bad news that we are born into. We must recognize our own brokenness and spiritual poverty, our own enslavement to sin and blindness and our own oppression. We must admit that we are in need of rescue. And only Jesus, the sent one, can bring that rescue and bring that restoration. Loved ones, do you know this good news? Do you know the one who brings good news? Have you, have you come to the sobering condition of your own wayward heart and know that hope and healing is found only in Jesus Christ, that He alone can bring about restoration, He alone can bring about recovery? Because He is the one who entered into temptation and came out clean and strong and victorious, came into a broken world in need of good news, release and recovery and freedom. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he says. Now, what is interesting here in Jesus' reading of Isaiah is that he's reading from Isaiah 61, verse 2. But he cuts off Isaiah 61, verse 2, halfway through. He doesn't finish the verse. He begins with procl- uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but then he stops because the second half of the verse in Isaiah says, and the day of our God's vengeance. He cuts it off, not because the second half of the verse is not true, but because it refers to the second coming of Christ. This is his first coming, the first advent. And the first coming of Jesus is all about salvation. It's good news. The second coming of Jesus, not here in Luke 4, is not about salvation, but rather about judgment, judging the living and the dead. Both prophecies from Isaiah 61 will come to pass, but at different times in history. This moment here in Luke 4 the moment that we're still, still living in to this day is the day of salvation. The day of vengeance and of judgment will come. So this is why we proclaim and preach good news to all so that more and more people might repent and trust in Christ and enjoy Him for all eternity and, and to be spared from judgment and to receive and enjoy the year of the Lord's favor. Year of Jubilee is how your Bible might say it might translate it. In the Old Testament, it means that the year of Jubilee, this is when slaves were set free and debts were canceled. A new start begins. So spiritually speaking, the year of the Lord's favor means total forgiveness, complete and sufficient salvation, new creation, new start, new identity, new heart of flesh, new spiritual blessings found in Christ alone, new freedom, to turn from serving ourselves and turn toward the Lord and serving others. New eyes to see the reality of eternity in the, in the midst of an earthly life. Verse 20. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. So the tension is building in this moment. This is, this is where the person, Jesus in this case, 
reads the Scriptures, and then they begin to explain the passage they just read. So the crowd that is gathered is silent, has this intense focus on Jesus. Okay, what are you going to say? Verse 21, he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this Scripture has been fulfilled. So what does Jesus mean there? He's saying, in short, that these Spirit-inspired words, written 700 years before this moment, these words are referring to me, he's saying. Isaiah's writing of me, writing of this moment, now, in the synagogue, this life that I am living, he's saying, I am He, the, the Messiah, that the Old Testament promised would come, I am He. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has been sent to preach and proclaim the Spirit of the Lord is on me and I have been sent to bring good news to those who know they are in need of good news. All those centuries of waiting. All the Old Testament writers in those scrolls pointing to one day the Messiah would come and the Messiah is here. I am He, Jesus is saying The announcement has been made. How will people respond? Verse 22, they were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? So there's two parts to their response. The first part, they're amazed by the gracious words that came from the mouth of Jesus. So we can assume here that that Jesus taught more than what is recorded there in verse 21 in the Gospel of Luke. He gave them more than just a one-sentence explanation. But with however many words came from his mouth, the people were amazed. And yet, they also, their second part of their response was, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, Joseph the carpenter. The guy who built your house, fixed your gate, repaired your roof, built that kitchen table for you. How could this common man's son make a claim that he is the promised Messiah? familiarity has blinded them. Remember, remember how Luke starts off in verse 16. Nazareth, where Jesus has been, had been brought up. They had become familiar with Jesus the carpenter, but now they're missing Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. They knew the customs of the synagogue. The rituals, the routine, the language, the service order. They knew much of the Old Testament by heart. And yet they were missing the Savior who was right in front of them. Loved ones, some of you are missing Jesus. He's right in front of you and you're missing Jesus. Are you missing the Jesus that this passage speaks of? Who is revealed revealed to us by the Scriptures as the Messiah of the world? I pray that we would not miss Jesus Christ this Christmas season. I think there are two big areas that potentially blind us from seeing who Jesus truly is and then responding to Him in faith. We are either blinded by our boasting or we are blinded by our baggage. The first group of people is blinded by their boasting, their religious background. They often know the stories, the scriptures, the routine of the church. They know the songs, the service order. This is when we stand. This is when we sit. They've built a spiritual resume of good works. I went there, I did that, I served there, and and while none of that good works for the Lord is inherently bad, the person I'm talking about is blinded by their own self-righteousness. They say, yes, of course I know Jesus, and they begin to then point to, this is all I've done to merit His acceptance and His love. So when they imagine the, the pearly gates moment, 
And the question of why should I let you into heaven, their first thought is, well, because I did this, said this, gave that, served there. I, I, I. Instead of Him, I'm here by the grace of God alone. Him, Messiah. Him, Christ. So the idea to these to those blinded by their boasting that they're born poor, captive, blind, and oppressed, it irritates them. It rubs them the wrong way. They think, well, other people are born, born that way, but not necessarily me. And they are blinded by their boasting and they miss the good news of Jesus. And one day, according to Matthew 7, they will say in judgment, oh Lord, we did this and we did that and we did this in your name and And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Your spiritual resume does not save you. I never knew you in relationship because you were trusting in yourself and not trusting in me. Dear ones, are you missing Jesus, the Messiah? Have you become so familiar with the things of faith that you're missing the object of our faith? His name is Jesus Christ. If you're fixated on looking horizontally to those around you or to culture, guess what? You will always find people around you who you are more righteous than. It's really easy to do. And it stirs up this self-righteousness in us. And we get blinded by it. And in doing so, if we get blinded by our self-righteousness, we will reject Jesus and and, and you think, no, no, I, no way am I rejecting Jesus. I, I'm all about Jesus. But, but in fact, you are rejecting Him because you think that by your own morality, by your own behavior, by your avoidance of certain habits, by your ability to, to outrace or outrun that person over there, your good works, that you can be your own Messiah. You're anointing yourself as the chosen one instead of humbly falling at the feet of the only one who is worthy of worship. May the Lord open up our eyes and may, the, may He enable us to be quick to repent of our boasting. The other group that has the potential of missing Jesus right in front of them is blinded not by their boasting, but by their baggage. They are fully aware of how far they are from the Lord. They have the list of things in their past that they'd rather forget about. They know that how they have lived is contrary to the Word of God and they assume that they've run too far, not done, adu- not done enough, done too much for Jesus to rescue and save them. This is why some of you are here, maybe watching online, or those of us who have friends or family, we, we believe this, this false idea that only the so-called clean people gather here. Or you're thinking that by your physical presence, that the building's going to be struck by lightning because you walked in. Just a month ago, I saw someone make that joke. One truth that we confess when we get up in the morning and we walk in these doors and we choose to gather, we are confessing, I need the Lord. I need the Lord. I need His grace and His goodness in my life. Like I said, my, my Saturday was less than ideal. I spent multiple hours with my mom in the ER. I really could just be at home today. But it is good for my soul to gather with you and to open up our Bibles and to be reminded of truth. 
This is what we choose to do when we get up and walk in and do all the chaos of a Sunday morning, especially if you have kiddos. Okay, here we go. Game on. And we walk in because it's worth it. Because this is what God's people do. We come together to fellowship and to pray and to open up our Bibles. One means of His grace in our lives is this gathering in and of itself. When you're blinded by baggage, your spiritual enemy wants you to believe that you're the only one with baggage. Again, it's utter nonsense when the Scriptures tell us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have earned our way into a right standing. We are all in need of grace. Those who are blinded by their baggage wrongly assume that their self-inflicted jail cell that they put themselves into is too great for the Lord to break them out and bring about freedom. That He's able to bring about freedom in those people, but me? No, my jail cell must be too, too strong, too, too chained up. That He doesn't have the power to set you free. Loved ones, you're just... It's nonsense. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong, not because I said it, but because Jesus himself rolled up, opened the scroll in, in the synagogue and said, I have come to set the captives free. I have fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. I am he. You're wrong because Jesus Christ says you're wrong. And he's too good for you to somehow assert yourself as greater authority than he is. He's faithful to do exactly what He says He will do in verses 18 and 19. I pray that, again that the Spirit would open up our eyes to see Him for who He is and that we would follow Him in response to that truth. Verses 23 and 24, Then He said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that, what we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Jesus being all-knowing, he knows their thoughts. People wanted Jesus to prove his claims with miraculous signs, to do what he has been doing in the towns of Nazareth, or to do what he's been doing in other towns like Capernaum, to do it here in Nazareth. As one author said, the people are saying, well, you profess, now produce, Jesus. Show us your power, show us your miracles, to which Jesus knows this group Miracles won't move them from unbelief to belief. It won't move them to doubt, to trust. It's a heart issue. It's not a miracle issue. And then Jesus points them back to two examples of Old Testament prophets who were also rejected by their own people, the Israelites. And in those stories, besides the fact that they were rejected by their own people, there's also a storyline that the prophets were sent elsewhere, including to Gentiles. So the blessings are being missed by the Jews there, and they're going to the Gentiles, to the Gentile widow and to the Gentile leper. The blessings are going to people who would have been considered unclean or far from God, poor in spirit, in need of freedom. And those closest to the prophets, they missed, they were missing the good news. And Jesus is telling the people here in the synagogue, you're missing what is right in front of you. You're missing it just like your ancestors did. You're blind and hard-hearted just like your ancestors. And these people, these words of, of Jesus are rebuke and confrontation which leads to this response, verse 28. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill 
that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Their familiarity with Jesus has led them to blindness. They assume he is a false prophet, and they're preparing to stone him as the law would, would prescribe. They are enraged that Jesus says that they are wrong, and that the good news is not just for the Jew, but also for the unclean Gentile. But we know from Paul that the gospel is for all, including you, including you, including you, including you who are watching online. Romans 1.16 reminds us, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. The first recorded public sermon is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, brings conflict. Some will receive, some will reject. The cross is foreshadowed here. One day the mob will call for the death of Jesus, and yet that day, on that day, it will be the appointed day by Jesus, the hour at which Jesus says, I will lay down my life. Not a day sooner, not a day later, because he has the authority to lay down his life and take it back up. Because Jesus, the sovereign one, is in control just as he is today. So conflict is foreshadowed in Luke 4, but so is the resurrection. Don't miss that. He just passes through the crowd. I love that. I'd love to watch that. He just passes through. So foreshadowing, one day, stone is rolled away, he just passes through. He just literally walks out, not as a ghost, but as a bodily resurrected God-man. He will rise from the dead on the third day because all authority in heaven and on earth is his. And Jesus is the Christ, the, the chosen, the anointed one, the Messiah. This is who he is. And it leads then to his life's activity and mission because who he is this is what he does. He, he releases the captives. He brings recovery of sight to the blind. He preaches good news. He sets free the oppressed. And loved ones, he's still doing that supernatural work. He's still doing that work. Not only in us, but through us. Because we're in Christ, our identity is in him now. And so, with the rest of our lives, however long we've been given here on this earth, we go as sent ones because he is, this is what he, what he does and because we're in Christ, this is who we are in Him, this is what we do. We're sent out. Jesus, the sent one, has come, loved ones. And, I, and toward the end of His earthly ministry, He said this to, his, to one of His disciples in, in John 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Fellow members of the body of Christ, fellow laborers in the harvest field, fellow missionaries all around us, including this week. All around us are people who are in need to hear the good news of Jesus, to be shown the good news of Jesus. And He has sent us to be His hands and feet, to be His ambassador, the one who rescues, the one who sets captives free, the one who opens eyes. Those who are captive to their own self-righteousness or captive to their own self-condemning baggage. Jesus is the only one who has the power to set free and bring about new eternal life. So this week of all weeks, may we show and tell of the good news of Jesus. For if you're in Christ, you and I are sent. And the one who has sent us is faithful to save. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and lives. I thank you for 
that in Christ the year of Jubilee has come. It is coming in eternity. Continue to open up our eyes to see the spiritual realities around us. To see people the way you see people. Give us opportunities, providential opportunities to show and tell of your good news this week. I thank you that you are still setting the captives free. You are still opening eyes. You are still bringing good news. You're still setting us free, not to serve ourselves, but to serve you alone and love our neighbor and love those around us. Thank you for this family of faith. Thank you for this local church. I pray you be glorified by how we worship you this week. Give us a, a sweet spirit of remembrance and awareness of your presence and you coming as a small child, as the Messiah, the anointed, the chosen one, sent in order to save. May we welcome your truth and your grace in our lives this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.